All right, well, Romans chapter 8, this is our, our fifth week, okay, in this amazing chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, the verses we're about to read are incredibly powerful verses uh, that most of us do not understand, and if we understand them, I, I think we struggle to live into them. Again, we have a number of baptismal candidates on the front row, and so I want to speak to everyone here this morning, but I want to speak specifically to you as well, because there are some great promises in this passage as you take this step. Now, um, before we read our text today, I, I need to go back for just a moment to uh, the last three verses that my wife focused on last Sunday. Because there's two very important words there that I, I just feel like I need to define for you uh, before we can move forward. Because you will not understand Romans chapter 9 when we get to it if you don't understand these two words. Remember uh, Romans 8.28, Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God. Understand the promise here is not for everyone, but it is for those who love God. And the promise is this, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, the promise is not for everyone, it's only for those who love God. And, and you could say, well, pastor, I love God, but it doesn't seem like, at least from my perspective, like all things are working together for good. But the real question is, do you know what is good for you? My wife shared some last week that God's ultimate good for you and I is not our happiness, it's rather it's our holiness, right? That's why Paul writes there in verse 9, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Here's the good for each and every one of us. The greatest good is that we would be made to look like Jesus Christ. That's the greatest good for you and I. And if you love God and you're called according to his purpose, then every single thing that happens in your life, the good and the bad, can move you in that direction of being more like Christ. Because here's the truth. Outside of Christ, suffering is just suffering. Outside of Christ, there is no purpose to the pain in life. But when you are in Christ, he will take the things, including suffering, I would say especially suffering, and he will use it to make you more like Jesus. But there's two words there in verse 29. Again, you need to understand. If you underline in your Bible, so I hope you do, highlight, underline these two words, foreknew and predestined. Big words, right? Foreknew, predestined. Now, let's take that, that first word, foreknew, right? Because that's not a, a word that we use in, in our everyday language. I can't remember the last time I say, I foreknew that, right? We don't use that too often. But it means to have knowledge beforehand, all right? Understand you and I, we don't have foreknowledge, okay? We can guess what's going to happen. Sometimes we'll, after the fact, we'll say, I knew that was going to happen, but we never really know until it happens. In my mind, I hate to keep bringing it up, I thought the Jets were going to have a great year. In fact, I knew it. My wife was like, you say that every single year. But, but this year is different. I know this year is going to be different until the most Jet thing to ever happen happened to the Jets. I could not foresee what was going to happen, right, in the very first set of downs of the very first game. But because God is outside of time, understand this, he foresees all things. He truly has foreknowledge. And so from our perspective, even though something hasn't happened yet because we're, we're stuck in time, God is outside of time, and so he sees that thing before we see it. Listen, this is one of the reasons it's so important to allow the Holy Spirit to direct our lives, because he has foreknowledge of what's going to happen, right? Again, the best that you and I can do is we can make an educated guess. We can say, well, this seems likely, right? 
or sometimes we'll be prideful enough to say, well, I know it's going to happen, right? But again, we can't know until it happens, but God already knows what is going to happen, what is yet to happen. You're with me today. You're with me. So that is, that's foreknowledge. Simple definition. If you're following along in your notes, write this down. It is an awareness of something before it happens or it exists. Foreknowledge, an awareness of something before it happens or it exists. God knew you, think about this, before you existed. <laughs> he also predestined you. Now that's a big word, right? Predestination. I, I know this is a word that causes a lot of debates in Christian circles, and some of you may be like, Pastor, why do you even need to talk about this? Well, it's in the text. Paul talks about it, so I think we should talk about it, right? There are some who will say, I don't believe in predestination, but In order to say that, you have to ignore verse 29, verse 30, most of chapter 9. You have to ignore a lot in Scripture to say that, right? Listen, if you believe in God's foreknowledge, then you have to believe in predestination. Because if future events are known to God, then they cannot possibly take a turn that is contrary to his knowledge. Because if things were to take a turn contrary to what God knows, then God didn't know. Right? And, and so if the course of future events is foreknown by God, then history will follow that course the same way that a train follows the tracks. And so if you reject the idea of predestination, or you could say foredestination, that goes against common sense because no event can be foreknown unless it has been predetermined. God can't foreknow something if there's multiple possible outcomes, right? There are not multiple timelines, multiple universes. Let me, let me help out the, the Marvel fans in the room, okay? There's no such thing as the multiverse, okay? It, it makes for good movies, but it's not real. Some of you are like, what's the multiverse? Ask a young person. They'll tell you. They'll explain the whole thing, right? And so that word predestined, the, the Greek word there is the word proorizo, okay? It means to determine or to decide beforehand, to choose in advance, if you're planning a trip and you, you call up your travel agent, does anyone do that anymore? Okay, you get on Expedia, right, to book your tickets. What's the first thing that you need to know? Where you're going, right? What is, what's your destination, right? Where are you going? You've got to figure that out first, all right? And so this concept of predestination means that our destiny or our destination has been decided in advance. Predestination. And the pre, the reference point of pre, is defined biblically as from the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, God had a plan for you and for me. He made a decision to do something, namely to predestinate something for some reason, and what God predestinates are people. And what are we predestined for? We're told in Scripture we are predestined into adoption into the beloved. And so if you are a believer, know this, before you were born, before your parents were born, before Adam and Eve were created, God determined from all eternity your destiny in Christ, and so you have been chosen now into the beloved unto salvation, and therefore you are his workmanship unto eternal life. Amen? Now, if that's true, then this subject, this topic is pretty important, right? And and I know it can be challenging to understand predestination, right? But But I also believe this, that when we understand it, It should cause great rejoicing among believers who understand that God's grace is so powerful that it extends back so far into time that the sovereign plan of our creator, in that plan, he determined to shed his grace on you before you were born. Think about that for a moment, right? Before you were born, he determined to prepare a place for you in eternity. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 34, that at the final judgment, the king will say, come you who are blessed by my father, 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you went from, went from the foundation of the world. And, and so you could say it this way, that those God knew ahead of time, he made a decision regarding them ahead of time. And what is the decision that he made? It was the decision to conform them to the image of his son. Think about that for a moment. If you were a believer in Jesus Christ, God knew you ahead of time. He foreknew you. Now, very clear here, it does not say that he foreknew your actions. That's not what Paul says. It's a very important distinction to make here, okay? He knew you, right? He knew you. That's what the Lord says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God knew you, and he decided even before you were born that he was going to conform you to the image of his son. And so when we talk about predestination, this is just a biblical idea. Again, you cannot say I don't believe in predestination. The only real legitimate argument that can come up is in regards to the reason for predestination. Okay, this is where things get a little sticky. This is where things get controversial. I love a little controversy. I hope you can handle it, all right? But we ask the question then, okay, on what basis does God make his choice? How and why does God make his, his decision in this regard? On what conditions does God determine who will receive this amazing gift of salvation? There's two main views held by Christians today. Write these down. The, the first is known as the prescient view. The prescient view. Pre, again, means beforehand, right? Science meaning knowledge, before knowledge. And, and so the prescient view basically teaches that the predestination of an individual is based on God knowing ahead of time what a person will do. And so they would say, well, God looks down the corridors of time and he sees ahead of time those who will choose him. And those are the ones that he predestined for salvation. Again, the emphasis of this view is really on the will of man. In, in the prescient view, the ultimate deciding factor in our salvation is us. God chooses us for salvation only after knowing how we will respond to the gospel. Again, that is, that's one view. The other view is called the Augustinian view, all right? It, it says that, that God's foreknowing equals a foreloving. And, and here's the fact of the matter. In these verses, again, Paul is not talking about our, our creator's knowledge of facts, but rather his knowledge of individuals. Now, that might seem like a, a subtle distinction, but it is significant, okay? The New Testament's references to, to God's knowledge and his foreknowledge of people have to do with knowing them in an intimate, loving, saving way. In other words, when God foreknows a person, he sets his love upon that individual. Therefore, the Augustinian view says this, if you want to write this down, that our Lord's choice of men and women for salvation is based on his decision to set his love upon them not his knowledge of what they will do, okay? It basically says that, that God in his sovereign grace, he simply sets his love upon individuals and decides to do so without any consideration of a foreseen faith. He sets his love on an individual without seeing any merit in that individual. Now, some of us don't like this idea because we'd like to think there was something in us that caused God to, to choose us, right? And it's hard to let go of that. But this view basically says God chooses who he chooses just because he chooses them. And, and so the emphasis there is really on the sovereignty of God. The election of God is his choice. And so those are two different views, all right? Uh, and we're going we're gonna to talk more about God's sovereign uh, choice in chapter 9. I, I think it will be pretty clear to you where I stand. And regardless of where you stand between those two views, can I just say we can still be friends, okay? But for now, 
what you do need to know is that predestination is a biblical idea, okay? And so both of these views, they agree on this truth, that foreknowing comes before predestination. Foreknowing comes before predestination. Again, Romans 8.28 makes it clear. God does not predestine unknown persons, but specific individuals whom he knows. Jesus says it this way in John 6.37, all that the Father gives to me, they, they will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so we can argue about the reason that we're predestined, but we cannot argue against predestination itself, at least not biblically, all right? But look at this again. Paul is saying that those who God knew ahead of time, he made a decision ahead of time to conform them to the image of his son. And and so what does he do in order to make that happen? Well, the very first thing he does is he justifies us. He just, that's what Jesus did when he went to the cross. He, He justified us. He made us righteous, right? Scripture says that it was for the joy that was set before him, that Jesus endured the cross. Listen, Jesus didn't go to the cross with his fingers crossed saying, man, I hope this works. I I really hope they choose me. I I hope they make that decision. No, he went to the cross. He paid the penalty for the sins of his elect. He justified us. And here's the promise. One day, he will glorify us. Again, the emphasis on these few verses, I can see clearly, is on the sovereignty of God. And so if God knew you ahead of time and determined ahead of time that he was going to intervene in your life in such a way that you would surrender your life to him, that you would follow him, and that you would be made to look like Jesus, how should you respond? That's what Paul begins with in our text, right, there in verse 31. Would you stand with me for the reading of our text today? Romans 8, 31. Powerful, powerful text. I'm sure you're familiar with with these verses, but we're going to unpack them a little bit today. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So last week we we talked about our sure hope, right? Again, the greatest hope that any human being could ever have is to be made like Jesus. I don't know about you, but sometimes as I'm walking through life and and I look at my own failures, I look at my own shortcomings, I'm like, that's impossible, right? Like me, right? And I would consider it impossible if it were not for God's word that tells me that is his plan. And then I'm reminded of the scripture, Matthew 19, 26, that tells us with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible, right? It's amazing because I get the privilege as a pastor of seeing God at work in many of your lives. And as amazing as it is to see the change in your life, I'm glad I don't see the finished product. Because if I saw the finished product and you look just like Jesus, I might be tempted to worship you, right? But right now, 
each one of you, you share a part of his glory. When you uh, show forth the fruit of the Spirit, right, there is a part of God's glory that shows through our lives. But the future glory, the glory that is to come, is a work of God. And hear me, it's a work that you and I do not deserve. It's a work that we cannot earn. It's a work that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so as he changes us, as he shapes us, the only thing that we can boast in is Jesus Christ because he's the one doing the work. And so in our text today, Paul's going to tell us the reason that he's certain that this is our future. Again, last week's message was on a sure hope. This week's message gives us an assurance of that hope. And listen, if you can grasp Romans 8, I I know I've challenged you guys to memorize it. You're like, that's a lot. You can do it. You can do it. I believe in you, right? But if you can grasp Romans 8 with your mind and your heart, it's amazing because you'll know this. First of all, you'll know the way to live. It is by the Spirit of God. Amen? You'll know the hope of your future. It is a glorified, resurrected body in eternity. And you'll also know the certainty of that hope. And, and when you know these things, it's going to change your daily attitude. It's going to change your actions. You see, I believe that Jesus himself is awaiting the day when you and I will be glorified. The, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And one day we're going to sit down at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Well, think about that, right? And I believe Jesus is anticipating that day. I mean, what bride or groom does not anticipate their wedding day? Right now, there's some anticipation in our home right now. We're only about a month away, right? There's some anticipation. Jesus is anticipating that day when he'll sit down with you and I at the marriage feast of the Lamb. But I also believe this, you and I should be anticipating that day. Because when you understand the reality that's before us, man, you couldn't dream up a more wonderful future than this if you tried. That's why Paul tells the Corinthian church, the heart of mind hasn't even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And so again, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Really the question here is how do we respond to this wonderful plan of God for our lives? When you realize all that God has in store for you, what do you say? What shall we say, church? Well, we could say, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Say, Lord, I praise you, I exalt you, Lord, you're worthy. I think that's a good place to start, like we sang this morning, right? What shall we say, or how shall we respond to this knowledge of our greatest hope? And Paul asks a question that that we need to think on a little bit. Again, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, you might say, well, I know a couple people who are against me. You might even have a list today, man. The pastor, there's people, they come against me all the time. But here's the thing, it it doesn't matter how long your list is. It doesn't matter who's on that list. Why? Because no one or no no thing on that list is greater than God. Like no individual or no power that could come against you or maybe is coming against you has more power or authority than God himself. And if you're in a season where it seems like the world is against you and it seems like the world is winning, remember all things work together for good for those who love God. You may say, Pastor, well, You don't know who's against me. I mean, you don't know what they can do. Well, I would say this. What is the worst thing that they could do? Well, they could take my life. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but can do nothing more. Fear him who's able to destroy body and soul in hell. Okay, well, well, maybe they they don't kill me, but they can really make me suffer. According to Philippians 1.29, greater suffering means greater glory. Greater suffering just gives you a greater character and a greater testimony. Greater suffering equips you to encourage others when they suffer. And here's the reality. We know this. In this world, we will experience suffering. 
Sometimes we, we suffer because of decisions we make, right? We did that dumb thing, and we were suffering because we did that. But sometimes our suffering is no fault of our own. In fact, according to 1 Peter 2.19, sometimes we suffer because we're doing the right thing. And here's what I can tell you today, that God knows your suffering. God knows your suffering, and God feels your pain. And he is present today to strengthen and encourage you if, if you will allow him. But here's what else you need to know today that there's coming a day when God will bring an end to all sin and he'll bring an end to all pain. That will be in his perfect time and in his perfect way. But in the meantime, you and I have the privilege of being strengthened by the experience of suffering. Verse 32. Here's a verse to memorize. If you only do one verse in Romans, maybe, I don't know, I can't pick one, all right? Just memorize the whole thing, all right? But here's a verse to memorize. It's right up there with verse 28 and 29. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Boy, there's a lot in just one verse, right? When we talk about suffering, we know this, that God allowed his son to suffer and to die that we might have life. And if I'm being totally honest with you today, totally transparent, I wouldn't do that. Like, I love you all, I really do, but I love my son more. I'm just being honest, right? But, but think for a moment about what God did. He directed this to happen to his son. Are you debating about which son that is? I, I just knew he would do that. I love my sons. I wouldn't do that, right? But, but here's, here's the reality, right? God directed this to happen to his son, Jesus Christ, while you and I were in rebellion to him. Remember Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so here, we've been given life, we've been given the beauty of life, and yet we often mock God by the way we live the life that he's given to us. Like, like we sin, and then we blame him for the effects of our sin, right? But even still, the Father gave up Jesus for us all. But what's even more amazing is Paul's conclusion from this. He says, if God did this, like, if he has that much love for you, then how will he not also with him graciously give us a few things? Is that what it says? Maybe he'll throw in a few extras. What does it say? No, graciously give us, what's the word? All things. In the Greek, it means all. Like, if someone loves you enough to die for you, what would they withhold from you? Like, if you wouldn't withhold your own child, the most precious gift in your life, I know you would withhold nothing from me. Listen, if, if God gave up his son for you, do you think for a moment that he would refuse to comfort you in a time when you need his comfort? Do you think that he would withhold anything from you that would ultimately be for your good? Would he withhold his love from you now? I mean, what does it really mean? Because we say, if God is for us, who can be against us? But what does that really mean that God's for us, right? I gotta tell you, it means so much more than what we, we normally say. Sometimes we'll say to someone, I love you, or, you know, I'll always love you, right? This is so much more than that. And what these verses are really saying is that there is nothing that can hinder the purpose of God in your life. Nothing will upend God's perfect plan for you. God will bring it to completion. Do you believe that today? A few of you do. Let me tell you, the only way you're going to believe that is if you believe that God loves you. Do you believe that God loves you? Some of you are like, yeah. Some of you are like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I do. It's amazing because I'll ask people that question from time to time, and they'll say, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, I struggle to believe that. Like, Pastor, I, I want to believe that, but I, I struggle to. 
And nine times out of ten, there are two words that follow that. These words, because I. (laughs) Because I did this, or because I didn't do this, or because I'm this way, or because I'm not that way. But I want you to understand today that God's love for you is not based on you. (laughs) Okay? And therefore, you cannot sin your way out of God's love. Now, hear me, I'm not suggesting you try. (laughs) But you cannot sin your way out of God's love, right? God loves you today as much as he will ever love you. You cannot sin your way out of the grace of God. And some of us, we we have this picture in our mind that we think that God loves some future version of us, right? Like, someday when I get there, God's going to really love me. And so we spend our whole lives trying desperately to earn his love. But if you are in Christ, hear this today, you are already loved. Christ cannot love you more, and he will not love you less based upon you. That's good news today. Come on. That's good news. Some of you are like, man, no, I'm good. I'm going to earn it. No, no, no. For some of you, it's not only that you struggle to believe that God loves you. I was thinking about this week, this this week. Some of you, you feel like not only does God not love me, he's against me. And when you think that way, when that kind of thinking gets in your mind, you take every situation that goes wrong in your life and you use it kind of as a proof text, right? You didn't get the job you wanted to see. I told you God's against me. I told you he doesn't love me, right? You're praying for your mom and your mom passes away. God doesn't love me, even though she was 93 years old, right? But you could take whatever, whatever trial, whatever temptation comes your way, and you say, well, well, these things are proof text that God doesn't love me. Listen, when you and I suffer, it doesn't prove a thing about God's love because his love actually transcends those things. Listen, he loves you so much that he will actually use those things. And some of you might, if you're really honest, say today, well, pastor, I'm not worthy of his love. If you were to say that, I'd say you're right. You're not worthy, and neither am I. You're not worthy, and you never will be, and neither will I. That's why, church, we stand in need of the grace of God. Look at how Paul describes these blessings that God gives to us. What's, what's the word that, that he uses to describe how he gives us all things? What is the word? Come on, you got the text in front of you? Graciously, thank you, graciously. I remember as a parent when my kids were, were little, and they kept doing the same thing, and I kept correcting them. For some reason, you want to stick something in the socket or whatever, you know? And you just keep correcting them, right? Eventually, you're doing it begrudgingly. You're like, come on, enough already, right? Would you quit it? But you need to hear this today. God is a good father, and he does not begrudgingly lift you up when you fall. He does it graciously. Why? Because he's a perfect father. He doesn't just love. Hear me today. He is love. He is love. And because of that... He will not always give us what we ask for, but he will always give us what is best. There's a great lie being told in our world today that love means giving someone permission to do whatever they want. Like if you love someone, you'll you'll just let them be whoever they want to be and do whatever they want to do, but that's not love. It's never loving to let someone go down a path toward destruction. God will not always give us what we want, but if we stay close to him, will always give us what is best. He he will not always rescue us the way that we want to be rescued, but he will always use every circumstance to prepare us for what is ahead. So he will graciously, graciously give us all things, all things. Touch your neighbor and say all things. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3.21, 
He says, no, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Wow, that's a, that's a good verse to memorize as well, right? He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Think about that for a moment. Like, if that doesn't stretch your, your mind a little bit, nothing will, right? God gave his son Jesus up for us and there is no good thing that he will withhold from it. All things are yours in Christ. I, I don't think we get that because if, if we got that, our heads might explode, right? I mean, we're talking about being loved by the one who spoke everything into existence, right? Like, what, what is greater than that? I, I know some of you, you, you're dreaming about other things today. You're dreaming about that Powerball. I don't know what it's up to, like $700 million, right? I, I don't know what the number is, but I know it's enough to destroy a lot of lives, not just one. You could destroy a lot of lives with that much money, right? But if you're his today, let me ask you, what is the lottery? If you're his today, what is a new home? If you're his today, what is a new car? Honestly, nothing compares because you are an heir of God. Remember, you are co-heirs with Christ. And so verse 33, he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We talked some weeks ago about how Satan is, uh, he's the accuser of the brethren. That's like what he's known for, right? That's what he does. He stands there and he accuses and he, he brings accusations and so certainly he brings up charges. There are others in your life who might bring up charges, right? Satan, here's the thing, he'll tempt you to sin, and then when you sin, he'll accuse you of sinning, right? It's just crazy. But there's others in your life who may bring up charges, right? Just like the earlier question, right? Who can be against us? You're like, Pastor, there's, there's plenty of people against me every single day. But in the same way that none of those individuals have the power to overpower God's power, none of the charges that anyone can bring against you can supersede the decision that Christ has already made when he dropped the gavel and said, for eternity, you are not guilty. And yeah, plenty of people can bring charges against you, but none of them will stick for eternity because God justifies you. And I, I truly believe this, that the, the more that we as, as a church hold up truth in a, a godless culture, right, the more we're led by the Spirit to, to stand against some things that are, that are happening in our nation that the only way I can describe them is, is demonic, right? The more we stand up, the more that we're going to be charged by others as being in the wrong. Again, Satan is the accuser. He's the prince of this world. And so I say, man, let the accusations come. Like, bring it on. Let the accusations come from this world because I've already been justified by the creator of this world, right? God is the one who justifies. Now, why is God the only one that can justify because in reality, all sin is sin against God. Like, think about it. Even when we sin against our fellow man, we sin against God because that man or that woman that we're sinning against is created in the image of God. But God has justified us by allowing his son to bear the wrath that we deserve. Jesus took the penalty in our place. That's why he's the only one who can condemn, and yet he doesn't condemn. He offers grace. The question he asked there in verse 34, who is to condemn? Again, who's going to condemn us? He said, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Christ is the only one who can condemn. He's the only one who can judge because he's the only one who knows who has received his work and who has not, right? And the fact that he was raised or given life by the Father proves that his sacrifice on our behalf was acceptable to the Father. Last week, we talked about how the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, 
is interceding for us, right? According to the will of God. Not only is the Spirit interceding for us, but this passage here says that Jesus himself, he's interceding for us. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Think about that. The Holy Spirit is praying for you and through you. Jesus the Son is praying for you. Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus Christ lives to ask the Father for our best interests? Many of you uh, from time to time tell me, Pastor, I'm praying for you or I'm, I'm praying for your family. And I cannot tell you what a great comfort that is to me to know that there are a group of people or many of you that are, are praying for me, that are praying for my family, that are praying for the, 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 the ministry that God has entrusted me to lead. But I can take even greater comfort knowing that Jesus takes all of those requests and he presents them to the Father in a way that is in line with the will of the Father. And I can only imagine when, when we get to heaven one day that we'll be able to look back and, and see how God orchestrated the details of our lives through the intercession of Jesus. I, I think what we'll see is that many of the things that we consider trials were really blessings in disguise because God used those things to form us and to shape us. Look, look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In other words, if Christ loved us enough to die for us, then what could possibly separate us from a love that powerful? And Paul begins the list, and he says, okay, well, how about tribulations? Like, what if you and I, we have some serious trouble in our life? Christ will intercede for you. He will see you through it if you're willing to endure the trouble. Well, what, what about distress? I mean, life is full of distressing circumstances. What will you do in your distress? Will you blame God for the distress? Or will you realize he's the only one who can give you the strength to endure through the distress? I guess say try doing it on your own and see how that works out, right? Well, maybe it's persecution. Maybe it's persecution that, that will end your relationship with Jesus because that persecution will cause you to deny him. But here's the truth. Every persecuted believer that I've read about only loves Jesus more through persecution. Well, what if you're lacking food or clothing? Will the lack of worldly provision keep you from God's love? Again, where else are we going to turn? He alone has the words of life. But what if you're faced with death itself? All of Christ's martyrs, all of Christ's martyrs have been able, able to say this, what can man do to me? And then Paul quotes Psalm 44, 22. He says this, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. As they often say, put that on a coffee cup, right? <laughs> it's a cheery verse. But it lets us know this, that there is way more to life than just being comfortable and being physically satisfied. There's way more to life. Very often it is the wealthy who have everything that the world can give them that are the most dissatisfied. But Paul is speaking to us as believers and he's saying, you know what, persecution is a part of life. This life is going to be troublesome. This life is going to be difficult, especially for believers. Now I know this flies in, in the face of the prosperity gospel, the fact that life seems to be more thorns than roses at times. But as believers, we should know this, that it's not about right here and right now. This is not our final destination. This world is not our home. We are simply passing through on our way to someplace so much greater. 
Remember Paul said in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. And so he says there in verse 37, no. In other words, none of these things, here's the whole list, none of these things are going to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. None of the physical hardships we might face can separate us from the love of God. Regardless of what you're walking through today, if you are in Christ, you are loved. So hear me, don't let the hardships of life tell you otherwise, okay? The hardships only confirm what Scripture says, that we live in a fallen world and that we have an enemy. Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking to destroy, to devour. But you and I can rest in the fact today that if we are in Christ, we are secure in the love of Christ. So I say, let the enemy come against us. Let man come against us. What is the worst they can do? They can never separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul says, you know what? We're not just conquerors. We are, we're more than conquerors. The, the, the Greek word there is the word hupernukeo. Hupernukeo. We are not just victorious. We are decisively victorious. Hooper means above, beyond, more than victorious. We exceedingly overcome through Jesus Christ our Lord. One amen. We exceedingly overcome through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Like, like that is our, that's our victory, church. Church, remember, always remember the glorious future that is in store for us. Jesus is interceding for us, and nothing can separate us from his love because all things are ours in Christ Jesus, and we are abundantly victorious. Please, don't let the lies of the enemy tell you otherwise. Don't let your defeated enemy tell you you're defeated. You are more than victorious through Jesus Christ. Verse 38, I love this verse. He says, here's what I know. Here's what I'm, I'm certain of. Paul says, this is what I'm sure of, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else, in case I missed anything, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, Man, I'm certain of this. I'm sure of this. I'm certain that even though the world may kill you or demonic forces come against you, even if judges try to convict you, even if your present circumstances are difficult, even if your future circumstances are more difficult, regardless of the powers that would come against you, oh, you could travel to outer space or you could go to the bottom of the ocean, but there is absolutely no created thing that can separate you from this wonderful love of God that would give up his only son for you. You want to see the love of God? You see it most clearly demonstrated as Jesus hung on the cross. You see the greatness of the love of God as Jesus hung on that cross. And I want you to picture that in your mind right now. If you need to close your eyes, you can do that, all right? But I want you to picture that love this morning. And then I want you to ask this question seriously. With that love in mind, is there really any good thing that God would keep from you? Is there anything in your life that's too great that he won't help you overcome it? Remember, Paul started out with the question, what shall we say? But we could also ask this, how should we respond? You know, we sang it this morning, church. He's worthy of it all. Do you believe that today?
that he's worthy to be the focus of every moment of every day. If you say yes, then how are you going to make that happen? What steps are you going to take? Because the reality is that in Christ, you and I are more than victorious conquerors. We are destined for a glorious future that's beyond our imagination. I just want to say to all of you that are being baptized today, but also to anyone in this room that would name the name of Jesus Christ, let's start living like these things are actually true. Let's take a hold of these truths and and let's meditate on them day and night. Maybe you need to read this passage over every morning this week and begin to let it settle not just into your your head but into your heart. Because when that happens, I, I believe that you will serve God every single day and you won't serve him out of guilt. You won't serve him out of duty. You won't serve him because you're somehow trying to earn his favor or earn his love. No, you will live, hear me church, you will live with a heart of gratitude because you will understand this, that you are already loved. What shall we say? I think a good place to start this morning would be a simple thank you. Would you stand with me? Maybe this morning, you just need to begin with those words to the Lord. If you're in a place today where you're honestly struggle to receive God's love and to know your love, know this today, if you are in Christ, you are loved. Begin to receive that love. Don't look at the circumstances of your life and say, see, that happened. That's just proof that God's, no, God is for you. If he didn't spare his own son, what's he going to withhold from you? And so with heads bowed around the room, maybe you just need to do business with the Lord right now. Before we sing a song, before we move on to baptism today, maybe you need to do business with the Lord. And just give a simple prayer to him this morning. Maybe it's just a simple thank you, Lord, I thank you. Thank you for what you've done for me. Lord, I praise you. Lord, I, I love you. Lord, I give you my life. Lord, teach me to serve you. Lord, help me to love you. Lord, help me to be led by your spirit. Any of those prayers might be a good place to start. And so before we close with a song, you lift up your prayer to the Lord today. And then the worship team's going to lead us in a song. Then we're going to rejoice with our brothers and sisters who are taking this step. But right now, where you're at right now, just begin by thanking him. Come on, church. Just begin to thank him for his love for you. These verses that we just read, they're for you. If you are in Christ, he is for you. He is for you. Begin to thank him. Begin. Come on, church. Just begin to lift up your voice to him. Just thank him. Lift up a voice of praise. Lift up a voice of gratitude. We don't need a song to sing. We have our own song. Come on, just begin to lift up your voice. Begin to lift your hands. Begin to praise him. Thank him for what he's already done. Receive. Receive even right now. Receive his love. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah.